He was the first one that took me out to dinner as a new Christian. Man, that was harsh. We had to say grace in the restaurant and everything, and I was all embarrassed and shy, but now I do that with other people. It's great. Um, I just had a quick thought. You know, when we were singing Blessed Be the Name of the Lord this morning, we sing that song quite a bit, popular song. It's awesome. There's one line in that song that says there's pain in the offering. Still, blessed be the name of the Lord. And the pain in the offering, I couldn't understand that so much. And then we're praying for the gospel of Asia and praying for Amanda, and we have a team going to Mexico this summer. And as we were collecting the offering, I was thinking, you know, that used to be the biggest stumbling block for me becoming a Christian because I thought all these pastors and church people wanted my money. But you know what? A person spoke at a meal here one time and reminded me that our circle of concern may be as wide as the whole world, as big as the globe, but our sphere of influence is limited to a certain number of people. And our offerings, our money, and our tithes can walk Asia, can walk Mexico and El Salvador, and can go a lot farther than I ever will be. I may never go to China or Africa or any other country, but my money can, and it will lift up the name of God. And I praise him for that. And also, in the life of Job is the same thing, because... As Christians, those of us who are believers, our life is called to be an offering to God every day in our actions and in the way we do things. And Job's life uh, is an awesome testimony to that, that no matter how hard life gets, when all hell breaks loose, people are dying in your lives, you lose your job, you lose your house, still, though there's pain in the offering, blessed be the name of the Lord. So... Our scripture this morning is from chapter 19 in Job's book. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? Ten times now you have reproached me, shamelessly attacked me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If I indeed, you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me. Then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I'm gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me. They camp on my neck, my tent. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me as a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he doesn't answer. Though I beg him with my own mouth, my breath is offensive even to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. That is the word of the Lord. 
So is God unfair? Apparently. Got an email from someone this week knowing that I was going to address the subject today, and he said this, Some years ago, the mother of a good friend of mine was diagnosed with cancer. We all prayed for healing, but within a year, she died. When my mother was diagnosed with cancer, we too, as a family, beat our fists on heaven's door, and she lived. Now, my friend has done much more for the kingdom than I have. He and his family love the Lord and have been faithful throughout their lives, and yet they did not receive the answer to their prayers that they had hoped for, and I did. Life is unfair, he said in that email as well. In an article in Christianity Today, Mark Buchanan tells of a little girl named Caitlin. Caitlin is dying of a rare disorder in which her muscles are slowly petrifying. They are hard like wood right now, he says in the article. Eventually, they will be hard like stone. She will be unable to breathe, to swallow, and she will die. And her family and her church pray faithfully and fervently for her, but so far, no sign of healing. Caitlin's neighbors next door won the lottery. Life is unfair. Now, those are both relatively extreme examples, but the idea that life is unfair is something that all of us confront at one point in our lives. Their child comes to faith, your child remains hostile to God. Just as you get serious with God, you lose your job. 30 healthy babies, but yours has some health concerns and the future is uncertain, and so on. We've all tasted something like that. And for us, the issue is not so much the unfairness of life, but the unfairness of God. When we ask, why me? Our question is really, why is God doing this to me? And our assumption is that God should treat us better than that. Well, no one asked that question more poignantly than Job did. And his story has been considered somewhat the classic treatment of the why do bad things happen to good people question. Job, the Bible says, was a great man, the greatest in the land by both God's standards and people's standards. He was enormously wealthy. He was a respected leader with tremendous influence. He had, he had ten children. And he was also a good man, generous, a man of integrity, a faithful worshiper of God. And then in one fateful day, a series of catastrophes leaves him penniless. His flocks stolen or destroyed, his servants slaughtered, and even his ten children all killed in one freak accident. And then his health is taken. Painful sores cover his body from his toes to his head. And from honor and wealth and prestige, he is reduced to sitting outside the town on an ash heap, scraping himself with broken pottery just to try to relieve the painful itching of his sores. And some of his friends come and try to commiserate with him, and the bulk of the book of Job is made up of their conversation together. Job wailing in anguish about his situation, wondering why God is doing this to him. Job voicing his complaints to God, which Freddie just read for us. Why are you doing this? Why are you treating me so unfairly? And then his friends trying to help by giving theological insights and advice. Don't you hate it when people do that? like cups of cold water to a drowning man kind of thing. And in fact, the bulk of the book, chapters 3 to 37, is devoted Job and his friends wrestling with the reality of Job's 
suffering and trying to come to some understanding, not just of why bad things happen to good people, but in Job's case, why the very worst things happen to the very best of people. And Job says, though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, I get no justice. God tears me down on every side till I'm gone. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. The hand of God has struck me. Meanwhile, why do the wicked live on growing old and increasing in power? And so on. Job rails against God and begs him for some answers. Job's friends conclude that there must be something wrong with Job. And God is punishing him or something. But Job insists that he is innocent and he begs God for another answer to his suffering. Now while Job is doing that, we who read the story have the answers that he seeks. If you've read the story, you know that in the first two chapters of the book of Job, we're allowed a glimpse behind the curtain, a glimpse that Job never gets. And we see the reason for his suffering before it even touches him. What we see behind the curtain is a little embarrassing, makes us somewhat theologically uncomfortable. We see God and Satan involved in some sort of a wager with Job as the pawn. See, Satan is essentially accusing God of being inherently unlovable. And the only way that God can get people to love him is to bribe them. Okay, Job is only the best of men because he has been the most blessed of men. Loyal to God only because God has spoiled him. And Satan's contention is that if God were to remove all of the good stuff from Job, then Job would reject him. And his faith would be gone in no time, flat. And God agrees to let Satan test his theory. Apparently, pretty confident that Job will trust and worship God even if the blessings are removed. And so all the tragedies then that befall Job are Satan's attempt to prove that Job's love of God is of the merely superficial and fair-weather kind. And so we know then that the story of Job is not about suffering at all. It's a story about faith. Philip Yancey, in his amazing book, Disappointment with God, writes this, Job has put God on trial, accusing him of unfair acts against an innocent party. But chapters 1 and 2 prove that regardless of what Job thinks, God is not on trial in this book. Job is on trial. And the point of this book is not suffering. Where is God when it hurts? The first two chapters dealt with that issue. The point is faith. Where is Job when it hurts? How is he responding? Every good story revolves around a point of tension. And the story is about the resolution of that point of tension or conflict. Job's story is no different. Only the tension in Job's story is not, why does Job have to suffer? That got resolved right in the first chapter. The tension is, how will Job respond? Will Job trust God or deny him? Will Job prove Satan right or wrong? And understanding the story of Job gives us a key insight into the unfairness of God. Sometimes in scripture, in Job and other places, the curtain is pulled back and we get to see a glimpse into the spiritual realm. For example, in Revelation chapter 12, 
There you have a pregnant woman wearing the sun and the stars, highly symbolic. A great red dragon waiting to devour her child as soon as it's born. It's, this dragon's tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky to the earth. And the woman's child is born but is immediately caught up to heaven safe. And then the dragon and his army make war in heaven against the angel Michael and his army. And the dragon is defeated. Now, there's a lot of kind of specific interpretations of the details of that story, but most agree that in general, what is being described here is the impact cosmically on the spiritual world of the birth of the child Christ in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. So which story is right? Luke's story of manger and shepherds and Mary and Joseph and hay, or is it the story of Revelation with dragons and angels? Well, both are the true story. One is told from the perspective of earth and one is seen from the perspective of the unseen spiritual world. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus' disciples come back from a short-term ministry assignment and they tell Jesus about what they've done. Jesus erupts in joy and says, I saw Satan fall from lightning, let's fall like lightning from heaven. In Luke 15, Jesus says that when a sinner repents on earth, all the angels in heaven celebrate. The Apostle Paul, using the image of gladiators marching in the Colosseum, says in 1 Corinthians 4, We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. In Ephesians 3, he writes that God, by his work in Christians, God is manifesting his wisdom to the spiritual realm. And so in these and other scriptures, we get a glimpse of the fact that our world impacts the unseen spiritual world and our life and our faith and our, our actions here on earth have a ripple effect in the spiritual world. The problem is we never get to see that effect. And only very, very rarely as in scripture are we ever allowed a glimpse behind the curtain into the spiritual realm and see the other half of our life here. And that was Job's experience. Unknowingly, his actions would decide a cosmic wager between God and the evil one. And Job had no hints at all of what was happening. In fact, he couldn't know what was happening. If he did, that would have ruined the whole thing. If God had said, Job, hang in there. I just need you to do that for me. Job would have said, oh, okay, and rallied his strength, and he would have hung on. But Job is left battling, wondering why. And the whole point of this wager has to do with, with God's great human experiment in general. Will people choose for God even when God is silent? Even when their questions are unanswered? Even when they have all the reason in the world to believe that God has left them or God is not good? What God wants to know is, will people still choose for him? And that's a question of faith. This faith that God seems to prize so highly in people. One of Job's friends, a man named Elihu, said to Job, If you sin, how does that affect God? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects only a man like yourself. And your righteousness only the sons of men. In other words, he says to Job, don't flatter yourself. What do you matter to God? Your goodness or your sin, they don't impact him at all. For crying out loud, he's God. And the remarkable thing about the message of the book of Job, that Elihu is wrong. 
Job's response means a great deal to God. And Job's response will prove in the spiritual realm that God is not a fool for being so passionately committed to pursuing this mutual love relationship with humans and with you. And it matters greatly, God, that not only does he choose to stick with us when we don't treat him well, but it matters when we choose to stick with him when the going gets tough in our own lives. Now, what that means, of course, is that God is not obliged to make things easy for us. God is not out to make our faith easy because God is not unfair. Life is unfair, and we sometimes think that God should step in and correct life's unfairness to us. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he graciously steps in, as in answering the prayer of the man I mentioned earlier, whose mom had cancer. But we know that God doesn't do that in all cases, just as no good parent would do whatever would make their child's life easier. And understanding that shifts the emphasis from what God should or should not do to what we should do. It's Job's faith, not God's fairness, that is central to the story of Job. And what happens is that for all of Job wailing and wondering, for all of his friends telling him that he was the problem, for all of Job's bitterness about what had happened, he refuses to let go of God. He insists that no matter what happens, no matter what things look like, ultimately he comes back to the place where he can say that his faith, he knows, will be vindicated. This is what he says, though he slay me, Job says, I will trust him. Though my flesh may be destroyed, yet with my eyes, I will see him. I know that. But that's not the end of the story either in Job. Uh, God does, in fact, eventually swoop in and, and through a violent thunderstorm, God speaks to Job. And what I find interesting in this story is that God is not nice when he comes and talks to Job. He doesn't put Job's questions to rest by answering them. Instead, he fires a barrage of questions of his own at Job. Where were you when the stars were made, Job? Did you set the boundaries for the oceans? Did you raise up the mountains? Did you give the ostrich its speed, the alligator its ferocity? Did you invent the thunderstorm or the miracle of childbirth? And on and on and on, God draws attention to his own power as it's manifested in the created world. And so his answer to Job's questions are essentially, look, Job, until you know how to run the physical universe, don't tell me how to run the moral universe. Don't we do that, though? I mean, sometimes I think we legitimately wonder in anguish, why is this happening? But I suspect that more often we're inclined to say to God, you should have done this differently. And God says, don't tell me what I should or should not do. And I love Job's response at this point, right at the very end of the book. He doesn't have the answers that he wants, but his encounter with God is enough of an answer for him. And he repents of his questioning. And God, in fact, says that it's not, that, it's not his theological friends with their pat answers who have responded well to God, but it is Job and his desperate faith that has responded well 
to God. Faith, by the way, does not mean folding our hands and smiling serenely while our house turns down because God knows what he's doing. Faith is a relationship where we can wrestle with God and we can cry out at God and to God in anguish and ask him hard questions. Some years ago, one of the turning points, I think, in my own life of faith, life had taken a left turn for me and I was mad at God. And I went for a long walk one night just crying in tears and, and yelling at God. And I said, I said, you know, this is just like you. You dangle something in front of us and then at the last minute you, you pull it away. And in the course of my praying, I also said to him, desperate I think in my heart, I said, don't let me believe that you're not good. I know that you're good, but it doesn't feel like you're good. Don't let me believe that you're not good. And that Somehow that prayer proved to be a bit of a turning point for me. And knowing that choosing to trust that God was good, even when I thought that he wasn't, and that was pivotal for me. Faith wrestles even while it clings to God. And Job wrestled. He wandered dangerously close to the edge of blasphemy. But in the end, he clung to God and he trusted him. If ended the sermon at this point, I think it would be ultimately unsatisfying. In your suffering, in your experience of the unfairness of life, I hope, I trust, it's helpful to be reminded that, that there's something going on spiritually that maybe you can't see. And I hope, too, that the reminder to trust God because he is good is a good reminder. But if the only thing that I say today is just have more faith, that's not much. There are two things yet that are good news for you today. The first is the truth that God himself has suffered. God has tasted the bitterness of unfairness. I mentioned earlier that in Job, the worst of things had happened to the very best of men. That's not quite true. In Jesus Christ, the very worst of things happened to the very best of men. He too lost everything. His friends deserted him. He was beaten and scorned. He ultimately lost his life. A truly innocent man who alone of all people who ever lived did not deserve pain and yet experienced the worst kind of pain. In Jesus Christ, God stepped into the unfairness of life and now he knows how we feel. God knows what it means to lose a child. God knows what it means to be rejected. God knows what it means to be understood, to be slandered, to be physically abused. When we suffer God's unfairness, at least we can say, God knows exactly what this feels like. God has suffered. God has been there. The other element of good news, of course, comes from hope of the future. After Job suffered, God ultimately blessed him with more wealth than before, and again, with children, and he lived and he prospered into a ripe old age and died happy. Now, of course, that doesn't always happen. God doesn't always heal and doesn't always fix. But what happened to Job is a picture of what does ultimately happen to all of God's children. The Bible promises that there is coming a day when all the unfairness will be set right and when suffering will be no more. And in fact, on that day, the pendulum of unfairness will swing past balance and all the way to the other side when the unfairness will all be on the positive end. 
We will receive more joy and goodness than we deserve. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4 that our eternal glory will far outweigh all of your troubles in this life. So if life burns down your shack here, so to speak, God is building a mansion. If life robs you of your loose change, God is going to pour out on you all the riches of heaven in eternity. If life robs you of health, God doesn't just make you better. He gives a glorious new body. Is God unfair? I suppose in the end he is, but ultimately God will put unfair for our infinite benefit. And he will give us better and far more than we deserved and will pay us back double and more for all of the hardship that we've experienced. If you're wrestling today with the unfairness of God, if life has dealt you a blow, if you are wondering why something is happening to you or to someone you love, then this is a time to tighten, not to loosen your grip on God, the God who loves you, the God who has suffered and who understands your pain, the God who will lavish joy and blessing on you will far outweigh your trials now. Life is hard. And sometimes it's in that hardship that we discover to, sometimes to our surprise and certainly to God's delight, that we really do trust God. And our faith is not just tested, but it's strengthened and deepened. Such a faith will always be vindicated. God gives and takes away, and we choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And Satan slinks off, defeated. And God's trust in us is proved right. And we ourselves are ultimately honored. I'm going to ask the choir again to filter kind of up here. They're going to close the service by singing a song called Be Still and Know, and just in light of what we've talked about this morning, what we sang about earlier, just listen to the words and reflect. And hear God's word to you as he says, you know, in the midst of the storm, when life has dealt you an unfair blow, when things are harder than you ever thought they could be, be still for a while and know, as he said to Job, that I am God. Be still and know that I'm God. Amen.
As you go from here today, may the God of peace go with you. May you be still in your souls and know that he is God. God bless you. We are dismissed this morning. Amen.